This episode of 12 Pack was made possible by Nextiva. The official communications partner of the Pac-12 and best business phone service is chosen by U.S. News and World Report. Nextiva helps companies all over Pac-12 countries stay connected with customers and coworkers using one easy-to-use app. Get Nextiva for your business and get business phone service, video conferencing, team chat, call reporting, and more, all for a fraction of what you pay for these services separately. Make great calls every day. Visit nextiva.com slash 12pack to get started. Oh, Don't you dare be sour. Clap for your world-famous full-time champs and feel the power. It's a new day. Yes, it is. For 12-Pack Radio, get excited, y'all. Hey, football fans, welcome to the 12-Pack Scheme Show. I'm Doug, one of your hosts for the show, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew, who you can find on Twitter at QB11SD. Later in the show, Andrew and I are going to talk about the offenses at Stanford and Oregon State with a little bit of the Cal defense thrown in for good measure. But before we do that, we're going to talk to a guest, Chris Osgood, who's going to help us make sense of UCLA's offensive renaissance under Chip Kelly here in the early part of 2020. Chris is a contributor at Bruin Report Online, and he's also putting out all sorts of great information on Twitter at OsgoodCK. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Here at the Pac-12 Scheme Show, we're always looking for guests who can provide a unique insight into X's and O's from around the conference. And one of the things that stands out to me about your work is that in addition to breaking down the key plays that UCLA runs, you also chart their games, looking at every play and cataloging its key features. So maybe we could start there. Um, Chris, could you talk a little bit about how you approach breaking down a UCLA game? Yeah, I've got a, uh, a Google Doc. It's a, it's a spreadsheet that's um, I've got a shareable link that anybody can go look at. So it's kind of an open document. Uh, and it tracks the situation of every snap that'd be the down distance the ball spot and the um and what's visible by the offense pre-snap that's you know who's in the game what the formation is what the personnel is and then and then ties it to what happens after the after the snap what the play call was whether it was a run or a pass what the result was um and using that we can come up with a um a bunch of interesting uh splits to see how things are performing where there's tendencies to run or throw um, in fact, this week with Oregon, we had a locked-in run tendency with a certain personnel group. Um, something that you know you can't really draw out from the some of the analytical things that are just focused on, you know, the the, the game situation. But you can get a little bit more deep dive into what the offense is doing this way. And, and just so our listeners know, we're recording the show a little bit early. So at this point, UCLA has just played their game against Oregon, but they haven't yet played Arizona. Um, Chris, as you look through the data for those first three games of the season, um, kind of taken together as the, the early bit of 2020, is there anything that jumps out at you about the Bruin offense, maybe either this year in isolation or in comparison to previous seasons? So one thing Chip Kelly's doing this year is editing himself a little bit. The playbook has definitely been streamlined so far this season, uh, whether that's because of uh, limited practice time or um, you know COVID uh, unavailabilities or or just a, a self-scouting process. Uh, there was a lot more variety, a lot more weekly insertions and deletions in, in Chip Kelly's first two years at UCLA. Uh, and the three games so far for UCLA, they've been sticking to a core. They're, they're, they're definitely tailoring game plans and changing things week to week, but there's a much more um, streamlined core that they're using. Uh, the other main thing UCLA is doing in their offense is they've gone away from the 13 and 14 personnel multi-tight end uh, party, and they're they're using a two-back group. Um, they've used that in all three games instead of instead of the multi-tight end stuff. And that multiple tight end stuff always stood out to me um, over Kelly's first couple of years at UCLA, because as far as I remember, that wasn't something that was showing up at Oregon. Um, I haven't watched his NFL tape. I don't know if that was something that was coming in from there, but it really surprised me. It seemed to be getting away from what had made him so successful kind of during his first stint in, in the Pac-12. So th- we, we had a lot of, um, you know, sarcastic fun with the multi tight end stuff. You know, I, I've got, I've had my Twitter threads where I, I diagrammed, uh, you know, their core concept using five tight ends and no running backs and no receivers. Um, so we've had our fun with it, but uh, it was really a niche third and fourth, you know, personnel group in terms of play call volume for UCLA the last couple of years. I think it was, I think it was well-reasoned. It, it was a kind of a contrarian uh, run first, make cornerbacks responsible for run gaps type of thing, which, which, you know, you want to make defenders do things they're not on the field to do um so it was well thought out there 
Uh, they did try to do some of their core passing concepts with four tight ends instead of, you know, three receivers and a tight end. And most of that was not very effective. The tight ends didn't, like, for example, they'd run mesh with four tight ends. And it was obviously just not practiced enough because they were they were bumping into each other, running the wrong routes. Um, so it was, if they, if they had been able to execute it cleaner, it was probably worthwhile. But um, in the end, it was... Um, more of a goal line tool after they abandoned using it in the open field last year. Um, so it was, it was, uh, it, it wasn't w totally without its merits and it was, it was lesser used as the season went on. On top of that, do you think that the changes in personnel losing, losing Devin Asiasi and being a little bit younger and greener at tight end, I know the starter being, uh, was a walk on, obviously a very productive, good player who should be on scholarship at this point if he's not already. Um, but do you think that plays some factor in the, in the personnel group changes? That was, in fact, exactly what Chip Kelly said last year when, when, when he was getting asked about the multi-tight end group. Um, and he said he had a really good tight end room and uh, maybe a less skilled or, or an injured uh, running back room. And so that was also part of his calculus in using it last year. Um, we definitely projected this offseason that UCLA's tight ends would be a much more shallow group this year. And the two that were playable, that's um, Greg Dulcich, as you mentioned, and Mike Martinez, they're, they're both kind of more on the one dimensional side. You know, there's one receiving tight end and one blocking tight end. Um, and so that it was an, it was kind of an obvious um, pivot to go use all those speedy backs that UCLA has this year instead. You mentioned UCLA streamlining their streamlining their offense. And this was something, you know, for those of us who were following your work this summer, this was something that you were making a case for. Um, how, what did Chip Kelly streamline his offense down to? And do you think that that matches up with the best choice for what you're seeing from your, your kind of long range study of this offense? So the, the editing that took place was um, on the, on the pass side, as well as the run side. Um, you, you, you've probably talked to Hithliday about, um, you know, different run schemes showing up for a week and then going away for six and then coming back for a week and then disappearing again. Um, the, this week, this season in 2020, UCLA has been using a real tight core of run plays. They're doing inside zone, midline zone, outside zone, and then one gap pin and pull play that's buck sweep that they're really hanging their hat on. Um, in previous seasons, it was just every se every week was something brand new. Yeah, that's a renaissance back to his time at Oregon, really, because Oregon... I mean, I don't even know that we had, I mean, we, we, we had a couple of gap schemes, but most of the pin and pull stuff was actually just call line calls based on uh, alignment in the zone game. So um, I know watching the game on Saturday, doing the film study for Oregon, it was, it was like watching the old Chip Kelly offense in terms of the offensive line movements and uh, the scheme. I think the UCLA linemen this year are um, a lot more mobile and agile than in the last couple of years. I think um, the, the, the line last year got kind of in the caught in the dead zone between being like really strong zone blockers and and too slow to pull. Um, so I think they've got a better group this year in the offensive line for for moving around a lot. So it sounds like we're kind of getting back to the old Chip Kelly, seeing a lot of the stuff that people might recognize from Oregon. Um, who are the players that are really benefiting from this so far in 2020? Uh, the primary recipients definitely Demetric Felton. Uh, the, their primary running back, uh, he had um, a crazy amount of yards against Oregon. Um, and then uh, Greg Dulcich, like we talked about, is still the um, the leading receiver, just like the last couple of years at tight end. That's the, the offense. The passing offense is still organized around the tight end. So let's get to that Oregon game. I, I think that that game was a little bit tighter than some people might have predicted. It was a final score of 38 to 35. And, you know, I'd be remiss not to talk about that, having Chris and Andrew on the show at the same time. So let's get both the Duck and the Bruin perspectives here. Uh, Chris, Andrew, what did you guys think about that game? I guess I'll go first. Uh, I was shocked at how efficient the quarterback play was for UCLA and kind of came out of it, especially after watching the tape, wondering why Griffin wasn't the starting quarterback to start the season. Um, now, there was obviously things that Oregon did wrong. I want to give UCLA the due credit, though. They had a good plan, and they executed well. Uh, Oregon tackled unbelievably poorly. Um, I don't really want to talk about it. It's disturbing how bad they tackled. So uh, that's something that certainly um, uh, play, played played into the effectiveness of Felton, but it also has a lot to do with Felton's skill set as just a really slippery back. So uh, it was it was a good game, and Chip Kelly um, – Definitely brought out some things both offensively. I know we're focusing on the offense, but defensively, they were the most aggressive I've seen a UCLA defense from a pressure and um, 
just a pressure package standpoint, especially early, on early down situations that I've ever seen. So yeah, I know uh, we'll, we'll focus on the offense, but that's kind of what I took away. I might cut in just a little bit to talk about that pressure thing, just because I don't know if we're going to talk about it again. I mean, we definitely saw that same thing against Cal the week before. And I know that in previous seasons, I've seen it here and there. Like, I think there was a USC game where UCLA played really aggressively and and did that same kind of thing. But it's definitely not their base package. Chris, as, as a UCLA fan, how are you feeling about the kind of aggressiveness? Is this a new turn that UCLA is taking things? Or uh, do you think this was just a one-off game plan decision? This this is a, a new defensive scheme that UCLA is deploying this season. Uh, they brought in Brian Norwood from Navy to be a pass a defensive passing game coordinator and co-head coach but not uh not an assistant defensive coordinator or co-defensive coordinator so there's some very funny title stuff going on uh but the the defense has definitely switched whole hog to a navy style um boundary and field aligned 425 defense with a with a um, they're calling the striker that that third safety that's always on the field um and it's it is definitely a pivot from a bend but don't break philosophy to a don't bend but sometimes break philosophy they're, they're tolerating some big plays to get those to get that pressure going and, and what he means by a uh what, what he called a, a pass coordinator um is we're going to run cover zero and he's actually going to coordinate all the pressure packages and we're going to be ex- extremely aggressive uh, in early down situations up front because um a lot more has changed than how they play in the back half it's it's almost an unrecognizable defense schematically from last year at least in the Oregon game that I saw versus what was more of a Don Pelham style defense Jerry Asnero classic uh, early early Oregon defense last year so my my big conspiracy theory about the defense um something something about the 425 that's inherently true about the 425 is the front and the and the um the the front the 42 guys they get called in a divorced way from what's going on on the back um, and so you can it's it's actually suggested in 425 literature that you can have two different people calling the defense a, a passing game coordinator and a, and a run game coordinator on the defensive side so my my suspicion is that as an arrow is calling the calling the front norwood's calling the back end well, i have another question for you don't you think that that fits i mean this is i'm also kind of answering the question but uh, with personnel like Osa Odigizua, who are really good, twitchy, interior, uh, one-gap players, do you think that this scheme fit changes uh, fit the personnel better than what they were doing previously? Yes. There's there's this uh, quote I dug up from a, um, it was a 425, coaching the 425 defense that basically says, um, you bump everybody down one position in terms of their size and weight. So you put the cornerbacks at safety, the safeties at linebacker, the linebackers at end, the ends at tackle, and the tackles go play offensive line, which is what you slated with Antonio Maffi. Uh, so they basically got smaller at every position. Um, and the idea is that they can just fly around and uh, swarm the ball and stop the run with smaller, speedier players, which is counterintuitive, but it's been it's been gelling the last two weeks. One more thing that I want to talk about on the defense. I know I kind of took us away from our conversation on the offense there, but um, when you first started talking, you mentioned field aligned and boundary aligned. Um, so for, for the listeners, when we're talking about the football field, if the ball's on a hash mark, you know, the field side is the side that's got more space on it. It's the side out toward the middle of the field, toward the far sideline. And then the boundary side is going to be the, the, the part of the field where there's less space from the hash into the near boundary. And so, Chris, when you talk about UCLA's defense being arranged, kind of with those two sides in mind, um, is this a situation where UCLA is going to have certain defenders that always play out to the wide side of the field in all that space and certain defenders that are always playing into the short side of the field? Or are, did you mean something different there? That's exactly what I meant. Uh, the 425 can be called, you know, based on um, the, the ball spot hash, like we we're talking about. It can be organized by personnel in the game or offensive formation, or it can be just consistently left and right all the time. Um, but what UCLA is doing is lining up relative to that boundary and field split every 100% of the time. So there's a there's a boundary corner, a boundary safety, and they work with the will linebacker and the, the boundary defensive end who's called the Raider on every play. So they're always the same guys around each other. And then the field safety, the field cornerback, and the striker are always working with the Mike linebacker, and they're always on the same side of the field together. So there's a lot of, um, even though they're flipping around a lot, there's consistency in who they're working with and who their kind of their coworkers on the field are. It's it's been working out interestingly. Oregon does the same thing. Uh, their field and boundary defense as well. And uh, in theory, part of the reason why is because if you're going to be a multiple defense like UCLA is now. 
um, and you have these guys working together. They're repping together all the time on these different pressures and these stunts. And so that you don't have guys rubbing and running into each other, kind of like you talked about earlier with the tight, the four tight ends running the mesh. Um, it's a more streamlined and seamless uh, from, from pressure package to pressure package because they have all those reps together. And I think that really showed on Saturday for UCLA. They were, they were very in sync on their timing, on all of their twists. There was uh, in the UCLA's first game this year, there were a couple situations where the ball spot was right down the middle of the field and they weren't, they weren't on top of just declaring a, a which way is which on their defense. And th there was a couple situations where the, you know, two guys that should be on the opposite field all the time were standing next to each other, kind of looking at each other going, which one of us is wrong? And then the offense, the Colorado offense snapped the ball and got a big gain right where the person wasn't. Um, but those, those details have been ironed out. Yeah, and that's definitely an experience thing because if the ball's in the middle of the field and you don't have a field side and the boundary side, there's going to be some other feature that you're using to set that defense, whether it's where are the most receivers, where's the running back lined up. Um, you know, So that is going to be one of those things that as you get more experience in the system, you get better at going, what's my next feature that I'm looking for to get this defense set up? Anyway, I love the 4-2-5. I'm glad we could sneak that in a little bit, but let's get back to the offense now. Um, Chris, what did you see from, from UCLA uh, in, in this Oregon game? So uh, before we go on the offense, just at a meta level for UCLA, the, the fan base was going into this game, you know, screaming, you know, this is not a, a, uh, a do-over season for Kelly. This season counts. This, this game matters. You don't just get to say, oh, well, we lost to the number 11 team. This, you know, there's no excuses because of how the, how the, um, how the Chip Kelly year has been going. You know, the, the, the refrain was there's no moral victories. And then uh, everybody kind of left the game going, well, yeah, that was kind of a moral victory. That was fun, even though we lost. It was a, it was a total flip for the fan base to kind of enjoy a loss for once. It's kind of bizarre. Um, but uh, obviously, without uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson and with Chase Griffin uh, playing quarterback, they had to eliminate a lot of the deep passing game and really lean on their run game, which is something Chip Kelly wants to do all of the time anyway. Uh, so they, they had like a two-to-one run-to-pass split. So they ran the ball twice as much as they threw the ball. And when they did throw the ball, um, you know, four verticals was off the playlist, off the play call list for most of the game. Um, and then there were a lot of shorter progression passing concepts like you might expect with a quarterback with a, um, you know, less powerful arm. I actually thought that UCLA in the passing game that they were they were play calling really well. They kind of had a number on Oregon's coverages to an extent. There were a lot of times where they were able to attack Oregon's zones and either outnumber defenders or create some openings. Um, even a couple of busts. I'm not sure that UCLA ended up hitting on them, but there were a couple of plays where it looked like somebody was running pretty deep without anyone anywhere around them. Um, so a lot of credit to the to, to the Bruins' offensive play calling there as as well. Was there anything that was kind of unique about this game from a play calling perspective? Like, you know, Chip Kelly, make or break season, as you're saying, going up to to play, you know, his his original Pac-12 school. Was there anything that jumped out at you about this game plan that might have suggested it was a little bit different for Kelly or that he uh, was really pulling out all the stops to get the win? UCLA brought into the game plan a, a two-back uh, package. Uh, it was a 21 personnel, so two backs, one tight end, two receivers. Uh, it was clearly intended to be executed with Dimitri Felton and Casimir Allen, two actual running backs on the field. Um, but Casimir uh, Allen was unavailable due to um, probably contact tracing. And so they didn't have the running back that practiced this package all week for the game. And they used their slot receivers as a second back this week. So they, um, they, they used slot receivers to do uh, running back things. Uh, and it was, it was a really... Uh, it, at, at the top level, it was it looked like a triple option offense. It was the old, um, you know, Chip Kelly, Oregon blur with what Fish, Fish Duck, Charles Fisher used to call the straddled triple option kind of where there's a, 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 you know, a run down the middle, a quarterback keep and a quarterback pitch on, on every play. Uh, the reality is it was really a lot of visual noise and UCLA was really just running their core interior runs, which is inside zone and midline zone. Um, and so there was, there was a running back um, offset next to the quarterback and a running back behind the quarterback. And um, you, since they were using a slot receiver as that pre, you know, pretend second running back, you could kind of tell what the play would be based on where the actual running back was lined up. Um, and so Oregon kind of figured that out as the game went on. Uh, so it was definitely kind of a flavor of the week smoke and mirror show, but it was effective. 
Yeah, and something that I really loved about that is that they couldn't move around where the slot receiver was and where the running back was. So sometimes they'd have the running back in that pistol alignment directly behind the quarterback. Other times they'd have him be offset with the wide receiver back there in the pistol. And they could get kind of different run paths and things like that out of that that initially kept Oregon's defense really um, off balance, I thought. It was really, really interesting part of their game plan. The, the other important part about it, uh, it, it, I don't think there was any on-field reading taking place. I think every handoff, keep, and pitch was a locked-in pre-snap call. So, so Chip Kelly was taking, you know, on-field decision-making pressure away from his inexperienced young quarterback. So they basically just um, called those branching options a few times early, deliberately, and then and then just went to their run game with the noise, their interior run game. Andrew mentioned being impressed with the quarterback. Chris, what did you what did you think about this quarterback play? And do we have a quarterback controversy uh, brewing in Westwood right now? Uh, I don't think we have a quarterback controversy, but the 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 um, Bruin Report forum has been on fire as if there was a controversy. Um, uh, so there's there's a lot of people that um, are excited to see Griffin get a second shot against Arizona if Dorian Thompson Robinson is. Um, is in a, you know, misses two games because of the contact tracing. Um, but Griffin was obviously limited in his, you know, the strength of his arm and his, you know, ability to throw past, past 15 to 20 yards. But he was really ultra decisive. Um, it, I actually did a um, deep dive on uh, why cross pass plays in the three games UCLA played this year, comparing and contrasting you know, DTR and Griffin. Um, and almost every Y cross that UCLA calls with Dorian Thompson Robinson, he's looking for the home run deep ball every time. And he's only got like three completions on 18 play calls in two games. And then Griffin against Oregon on nine play calls had six completions and he was consistently hitting the shallow routes a lot earlier. Well, one thing that um, getting a second game of sample will be helpful. Hopefully we do get a second game of sample and you can chart this. Um, especially against an Arizona team that's not very good at corner versus an Oregon team where corner is probably corner and defensive line are probably the strengths, whereas the interior uh, there's some some depth issues at linebacker and certainly some issues at safety with the with the guys they had available on on Saturday. Uh, I think that you would probably find that the heat map uh, just based on on personnel advantages was in the middle of the field and in those shallow energy zones, uh, whereas maybe that might not be the case against Arizona. So. Uh, that might be anecdotal, at least for the, at the time, based on the sample available. The the uh, the shape of the heat map between uh, the two quarterbacks for UCLA this year, it was actually fairly consistent. Most of the completions are in the middle of the field between the hashes, about 10 yards behind the line of scrimmage. And there's the you know there's a lot of deeper seam shots by Thompson Robinson, but the completion rate's not that great. And Andrew, I mean, you were really impressed by by Griffin, the backup. Off air, you might have suggested that maybe there should be a quarterback controversy in Westwood. Chris doesn't think there is, but what's leading you toward that conclusion? Well, from from when when Chip was at Oregon, I know Chip has his guy, and that's his guy for the entire season. Because uh, when Darren Thomas was the quarterback at Oregon, Brian Bennett actually played really well when he got in, and and then there was obviously Marcus Mariota sitting on the bench, redshirting behind both of them. Uh, who probably was better as a freshman than both of them. So uh, he, he certainly sticks with his guy, uh, for better or for worse. But based on what I saw on Saturday, especially reviewing the film, was um, just very good eye discipline from a young quarterback. Someone, like he said, he was very decisive. Uh, he was he was quick to get off one. And just, again, watching him go through his progressions, his eyes were clean. And I was a little worried with him being a, a smaller-framed quarterback that – he would have a hard time finding angles, but he, he made good subtle movements in the pocket too to create angles for himself, um, which shows shows some savvy that isn't 100% necessary if you're not going to have the physical prowess that might uh, might be recommended. I, I thought incorrectly that UCLA might uh, boot Griffin out of the pocket quite a bit this week to get him you know, out from behind the offensive line. That was a big play call emphasis the prior week against California. Um, but they didn't they didn't really run it this week. That was interesting. Yeah, I think that just kind of highlights that they're really comfortable with him in the pocket. I don't I mean, did you you would know this far better than I because you chart the games. But did you see a difference in, in tendency of the actual play call or did you just see a difference in the way the ball was distributed? It was game? it was really just the replacement of all verticals with um, that's like, you know, four verts where it's literally just four guys running, you know, straight down the field uh, that 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 play got shelved. Uh, and there was just the rise of um, mesh 
uh, all hitches and a lot of stick and snag concepts, which are um, you're really just putting a one linebacker in conflict in the flat between a, a receiver and a running back. You just throw it where the where the conflict guy isn't. Interesting. Yeah, well, it was certainly efficient, and I'd be interested to see um, if that if it's the same quarterback against a different group personnel-wise, if it stays that way, or if they start to incorporate some of the more uh, aggressive vertical passing concepts. So the interesting thing for UCLA is that um, Thompson Robinson's been really ineffective running uh, those kind of plays I just mentioned. Uh, their success rate's been really low when there's a quick twitch decision that the quarterback has to make. Yeah, and I think that kind of, I mean, from my opinion, leads into the Dorian Thompson Robinson has never looked particularly comfortable operating as a quarterback. He's always been more comfortable when the when the structure of the play breaks down. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and the you know the sixty yard zone read keepers don't hurt either. No, absolutely, he's a great athlete. Um, Griffin was uh, certainly effective as a runner, though. Yeah, he had a, he had a he had a couple nice runs in that two back package that we were talking about. Um, did fumble once, uh, so showed his inexperience with uh, um, this level of football holding the ball. By the time that this airs, the UCLA game will already have taken place. We'll be looking ahead to Arizona State and USC for the Bruins. Um, Chris, what are some things that you're going to be interested to see or that you're going to want to watch for as you head into those last two games of the season? There's there's two concepts that are um, definitely in the playbook this year um, that I think are part of a, uh, you know, Chip Kelly likes to have a, a pre-planned uh, gradual evolution throughout a season. You know, most, most offensive corners do. Um, and uh, UCLA has shown one time a, a wildcat where Dimitri Felton just lined up under center without a quarterback in the game. I thought that would be something to try with Griffin if that was if Griffin was struggling. Um, the other thing I expect to see um, as UCLA went from um, pure offset in their first week to a, a pistol backfield focus the, the most recent couple games, they've so far they've used the pistol just to run midline right down the middle. Uh, I expect them at some point to incorporate a wide zone which is sort of a halfway point between outside zone and inside zone. You're, you're starting from the pistol and you're running kind of behind an offensive tackle. So it's kind of a midpoint. Um, well, are there any final thoughts about the UCLA offense? It's been great hearing about all these different trends. Any, any concluding thoughts or ideas before we go? Well, I have uh, one more question, actually, personnel-wise, if you don't mind. Um, how, do you, how do you feel about the, the evolution and the development of the offensive line? I noticed that Sean Ryan kind of... Uh, stand out uh, through the first couple games for UCLA. Uh, what, what have you seen from that group? Uh, who, who stepped up? I know there was some turnover. Uh, Chris Murray, who was a starter last year, transferring out. So uh, that group has looked pretty impressive. What, what do you think? Yeah, uh, Boss Tagaloa at center was the other significant departure. He graduated. Um, so UCLA is playing, uh, what, seven or eight guys right now at O-line. Their, um, their, their tackles are staying the same. That's um, uh, Sean Ryan and Alec Anderson. Um, I, you know, Sean Ryan's an NFL product, so he's he's been pretty solid. Um, and then at, in, at the interior lines where they're rotating guys, um, the the starters have looked pretty good. And um, and then there's uh, Antonio Maffi, the converted uh, nose tackles playing guard in rotation. He's been kind of fun to watch because he's he's clearly learning, but he's got the um, the size and the and the attitude uh, at least to run block for sure. All right. Well, I think that that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, thanks again, Chris, for talking to us about the UCLA offense under Chip Kelly. And for our listeners, be sure to check out Chris's stuff on Twitter at OzGoodCK. A lot of these charts and play diagrams and things like that that we've been kind of referencing here show up on his Twitter in various ways. You can also find his full reports at Bruin Report online. And with that, thanks, Chris. Thank you very much for coming in and uh, hanging out with us. Thank you. It's a good time. We're going to head to an ad break right now, but stick around because after that, we've got Oregon State, Cal, and Stanford coming up next. We'll see you there. Late fall college ball, the NBA bubble, and UFC Fight Island. It's clear 2020 has been a year unlike any other, which is why you need a sportsbook with offers unlike any other. Get some skin in the game with MyBookie, where odds boosts, lightning deals, and free bets await all season long. And with the holidays right around the corner, there really is no better time to feast on some NFL action. Whether you're a first-time customer or have been playing with MyBookie for years, there is no shortage of value to be found in the thousands of game lines, unique prop bets, and contests that they offer every week. Sign up or get reloaded today, find an edge, make your bet, and get paid. 
They also boast a fully-fledged casino platform, giving you access to all the classic table, slot, and card games you'd expect to find at your local spot. And the best part is, at MyBookie, the doors never close, so you can continue to build your bankroll even after the stadium lights have gone out. Make the right play and sign up today at MyBookie. And when you do, use promo code OVERTIME to get your deposit matched halfway all the way up to 1000 bucks. The terms are simple. You put in $200, they'll match you with another $100 in your account. If you are already planning to bet this season, this is free betting money. It's winning season at MyBookie, so come join in on the fun and win some cash while you're at it. Hey, football fans. Welcome back to the 12-Pack Scheme Show. I'm one of your hosts, Doug, and you can find me on Twitter at Burke18CFB. I'm here with Andrew, who you can find on Twitter at QB11SD. We just wrapped up a great segment with Chris Osgood from Bruin Report Online talking about charting UCLA games, looking for trends uh, that have developed over the course of the season and in comparison to previous seasons. Now Andrew and I are back to talk about a team that both of our teams have faced over the last two weeks. Uh, That's the Oregon State Beavers. Specifically, we're going to talk about the offense coached up by head coach Jonathan Smith and offensive coordinator Brian Lindgren. They played my Bears a little less than two weeks ago, and they just pulled off the upset over Andrew's Ducks on Saturday. So we're still reeling from those games a little bit. Um, But I think this might be a fun time to do some compare and contrast and see if the same things were showing up in the two games that we watched uh, or if there was something different that was going on in these games. Um, Andrew, do you want to start us off by talking a little bit about the Oregon State offense and what you saw in their game this Saturday against the Ducks? Yeah, uh, I think we should obviously start off with the personnel. Jamar Jefferson, a running back, long of 82 on a long touchdown run, and I believe on their first offensive snap, so or no, second offensive snap, almost uh, pulling off the, the back-to-back after doing the first the same thing to Cal in the first snap the week before. Um, but the offensive line was really, really impressive too. Uh, replacing two starters, that was actually a big question mark for me coming into the season, and they've they've honestly probably improved from a zone blocking standpoint. So uh, what, what did you see against Cal? Yeah, I saw the same thing against Cal. I mean, they, they love to run certainly always with one tight end on the field, but especially they like to get a second tight end on the field and run behind those two extra blockers where they can really create a lot of double teams, reestablish the line of scrimmage a couple yards downfield and let Jefferson get going before he even, you know, really has to make his first cut. Um, and it was the exact same thing with the Bears. You mentioned that long run for the Ducks early in the game against Cal. It was the first play of the game, a huge run to set the tone uh, and get the get the Beavers on the board early. Something that happened on the Cal run is that Oregon State's got a tight end, uh, Tegan Cotoriano, is number 84. And on the on the long run against Cal to start off the game, that guy, he was matched up on a defensive end. And he just had him on roller skates. He pushed him about 10 yards downfield. Cal was playing with a single high safety. The safety came down uh, to try and get around that block, but he had Quatoriano in a defensive end in his face. And Jefferson just cut off of that um, and took it all the way to the house. What's leading to these big explosive runs against the Ducks? Well, on the 82-yard run, uh, they had great combo blocks from the the guard and tackle and center guard that allowed both uh, to climb to the second level and get good blocks on the linebackers. And so it ended up being just two two safeties taking poor pursuit angles and then not being fast enough to catch up with him after he broke to the third level. So uh, but a lot of the same things you said, though, with Tegan Quatoriano that need to be highlighted, highlighted as well as Luke Musgrave, which is the second tight end. He's more of the um, off-ball uh, H-back tight end. He's a, he's a good pass catcher, uh, but he's also a very willing blocker. All of them are very technically sound, and I think it goes to give credit to uh, Jim Mahalachek, the offensive line coach, who is probably one of the best in the business, um, for sure in the Pac-12, if not the entire country. Yeah, he coached the offensive lines running in front of a lot of the great Cal running backs uh, who went on and played in the NFL over the years. So I got to see him up close and personal as well. He's doing that same kind of thing at Oregon State. Something about Jefferson in the Cal game that kind of interested me is he had that massive, I think it was a 75-yard touchdown run on the first play of the game, did something similar um, on probably the last meaningful snap of the game. But in between, um, I think that there were only three runs that went for five yards or more. Everything else was held to four or less in that game. So they were a little bit boomer bust with a run game against the Bears. Um, against Oregon, were they more consistent or was that a similar pattern? It was a similar pattern. Outside of the 82-yard run, it was about a four-and-a-half-yard average. Um, but there were some some bigger chunks in there, 10 to 12-yard range. Uh, they, just, they just are so consistent. And they do a really good job, uh, Lindgren and Smith, pairing the play-action passing game, which they executed really well against Oregon, off of that run game. There was a big rollout kind of play-action fake that they had for a touchdown against Cal. They did something a little bit interesting. You know, um, 
With the rollout game, something that's a really common pattern is that the offense will fake a run, say, to the left, and they'll try to get the defense flowing to the left, and then the quarterback will roll out to the right, and then all the receivers will be working across to the right with the quarterback. You know, They don't want the quarterback throwing back across his body. Um, in the Cal game, they did something a little bit different that broke that rollout tendency a lot. They kind of had Jebbia do a little almost half rollout. And then they were dragging a tight end back to the other side of the field, to the side of the original run fake. They got him matched up on an inside linebacker, uh, and they threw, I think, a 25 or 30-yard touchdown or something like that to him. Um, it was That was kind of a really creative way to use that play-action game, uh, or at least a way that I see a little bit less as I'm watching film from around the conference. Um, what were they doing in their play-action game against the Ducks? Yeah, they were really uh, using their matchups in the middle of the field. Again, teams are attacking Oregon safeties, um, hitting a lot of posts uh, just just above the, the linebackers and underneath the safeties. That was probably their most consistent play action um, in terms of they were just finding stuff in the middle. I think it's interesting that you talk about that flood concept off, off the boot or half roll. Uh, so typically in a flood concept, you have a, a short, shallow under route running about, honestly, five yards to the line of scrimmage. You've got... And they're all staggered in terms of how they're coming across the field. Then you'll have an over route and a post, or you'll have a go. It just kind of depends on the formation if it's at a three by one or or, or doubles. Um, but when you when you have a have one of the over routes go across the grain, you get those linebackers chasing the the play action, and then they try to overcompensate to get across the field to the flood concept with the rollout. And so they're just they're chasing their own tail, and you have that that over route running right past them. So it's a it's a cool concept that uh, I've seen a couple teams use, but Oregon State's deployed it over the years uh, since Smith has taken over very effectively, and Washington did it under Peterson when Smith was the offensive coordinator as well. And and I will say that Oregon State also did a good job against kind of the more traditional like working with the bet. They had a couple of big or a couple of decent rollout throws to those uh, to that five yard route in the flat and to the over out coming behind in that 10 to 15 yard range. So they were hitting some of those conventional things as well against Cal pretty much their whole, you know, passing game to a large degree or at least a lot of their biggest completions came on that kind of rollout passing game off of the run fake. Against the Ducks, did you see any more like traditional play action passing kind of standing in the pocket? Yeah, yeah. Most of the play action against Oregon. I'm not completely finished with my film study, but I'm through the first half. Uh, it was mostly in the pocket, uh, more standard dropbacks. They would keep six or seven in. Um, sometimes they would they would release everyone, but uh, they they did a really good job. Jebbia did a really good job, especially against pressure of delivering accurate balls. He didn't kind of freak out or get happy feet. Uh, he just kind of stood in there and delivered both in the play action down downfield and then also on their more uh, structured passing game in the intermediate game. Uh, he was tremendous against pressure. And if he can add that as a consistent element to his game, Oregon State's offense could take a huge step going into 2021 where they have all of these guys back. Well, Jefferson being a big question mark, but the backup uh, is uh, B.J. Baylor is a really good player as well. Uh, my question for you, actually, on a personnel usage standpoint is, did you see uh, Jefferson get a majority of the carries against Cal, or did you see Baylor a lot? Because against Oregon, uh, Baylor only got three carries, and I was actually excited to see him and see what he could do. Yeah, Jefferson got the majority of the carries. Baylor got a couple, but he didn't really rip anything off. Jefferson had um, had all of their biggest runs there, and Baylor was definitely just kind of spotting him um, uh, here and there. Yeah, interesting to see that because uh, they're putting a lot of mileage. I know Jefferson had 29 carries against Oregon. Um, I guess it's a short season, and he's likely gone after this year, so they're probably not all that concerned about it. But I'd uh, be interested to see a deeper running back rotation going forward. Um, yeah, I'm I'm curious, you know, since we've both been watching Oregon State's offense and we've got this Cal-Oregon game coming up, did you happen to have any thoughts on the Cal defense as you were watching the uh, the Oregon State game for this show? Um, I, I thought it was kind of unfair to, to judge uh, Cal too much because I know they were returning a lot of their interior defensive linemen for their first game. Um, and it was like Oregon State's third game. So you have an offensive line that's executing their combo blocks at a really high level in the interior on their zone running game against a group that's just getting their first snaps of the season. So uh, if that's a matchup I think Oregon could exploit against Cal if – if they're still struggling against the inside zone play, because that's Oregon's bread and butter, just like it's Oregon State's. Um, but I think it's kind of hard to extrapolate with such a small sample of their starters. 
Yeah, I mean, from a personnel standpoint, I don't think it looks too good for the Bears. Um, the guy that they were looking to start at nose tackle at the start of the season didn't end up playing a game. He was out with injury. And so the Bears took a guy who was going to be a starting defensive end. Cal's a 3-4 team, so they're normally three down. They're going to have one nose tackle and then two defensive ends. And when the nose tackle went out with injury, they slid one of the starting defensive ends down to the nose. He's actually listed as a little bit heavier than the original nose tackle, but he's definitely more of a more of kind of a long body type, um, good at using his hands and disengaging, not as good necessarily at holding on to double teams against the center and the guard um, as a more traditional nose tackle might be. So Cal has kind of had to shuffle around the defensive line, even from just the start of the season, even when they're a hundred percent, they're not going to have optimal personnel playing all of those positions. I don't think. And I, I agree that that could be um, a matchup that favors the ducks for sure. Yeah, and it's an interesting matchup, too, because Oregon's interior offensive line is far from optimal. Uh, center is probably the weakest position of the group, and uh, they've got like a three-man rotation going at guard, which against Oregon State didn't perform very well. Um, so hopefully against Cal, it's better, but yeah, we might have two kind of subprime groups going against each other. Uh, the matchup that I'm really excited to see, though, is Cameron Bynum against Devin Williams on the outside. Cameron yes. Bynum one of the top corners on the West coast in the country. There's a really, really good group crop of corners in the PAC 12 this year, but he's definitely one of the best. And uh, Devin Williams is having a couple really good games in a row. So I'll be interested to see that matchup. Yeah. I mean, Cameron Bynum from a scheme standpoint, he can kind of do it all. He's got, he's got, he's especially good in zone. He's got really good instincts. You know, he's got, some interceptions over over the last several seasons that just came from kind of understanding his role in the coverage and being ready to jump around and even bait the quarterback a little bit into throwing picks. Um, what do you think about that matchup with Oregon's quarterback and Bynum in terms of him reading the field and not getting suckered into that kind of thing? Well, when you say that, I think of a specific rep last year against Washington where they were trying to, Jacob Eason was trying to throw a bang eight or a skinny post to uh, Hunter Bryant and Cameron Bynum totally baited him and undercut the route and picked it off. So um, that's definitely a skill set that's hard to come by. And when you have a guy like that, I think of Cliff Harris at Oregon in the early 2010s. Um, it's it's tough, especially against a young quarterback. So I could very easily see a turnover going his way in this game. Uh, there was a similar situation in the Oregon State game where Nashawn Wright fell off of deep coverage um, and picked off Shuck on a, on a smash route. So it was it's something that I could I can absolutely see happening, and it's something that's actually really concerning going into this game. Hopefully, with uh, as the season progresses. We see uh, improvement, uh, ball secure, improved ball security because the corners for the last two games uh, that Oregon is going to be playing, Washington and Cal, are the best corners in the league. So the smash route's interesting. I might uh, talk about that a little bit more for the listeners because I think it really illustrates one of the places where I think Bynum's really strong. So um, on a smash concept, normally what you've got it's it's a two receiver pattern. You're going to have an outside receiver run something short, like a hitch or something like that. Teams will run this kind of two-man concept in different ways. And then the inside receiver is going to run a corner route that goes vertical and then breaks out to the sidelines. So you end up with two receivers down the sidelines, a short route, and then a deep route behind it. And, um, you know, in a lot of zone coverages, the cornerback is going to have the job of kind of midpointing those two routes. So ideally, your cornerback is going to drop deep enough to take away the deeper throw down the sidelines for that inside receiver running his corner route. And then he's going to rally kind of on the quarterback size and shoulders to come up and um, break on that short throw first. So or what you're saying when you talk about the smash concept against Oregon state is, is he kind of getting baited into thinking that he can throw behind that, that kind of midpoint cornerback um, when he really shouldn't be making well, that throw. In this case, it was a little bit different because it was out of trips. And so you okay. had the outside receiver running a go route, and the outside receiver was getting carried downfield by Nashawn Wright. And uh, I don't know if it's because he wasn't fast enough or there just wasn't enough space between the two. And so he was able to fall off that go route, which was supposed to be a clear out and come down onto the um, onto the, onto the uh, corner route. So one thing to consider with smash concepts and something um, is that you only see them be real successful against two high safety coverages. So you have split safeties in the middle of the field. It's not very good against one high safety coverages because the coverages that come out of that usually aren't very effective um, or are more effective at stopping it because really you're low. It's a high low concept, almost like in basketball where you're trying to put someone in conflict in the middle on the outside, this, in this case, the corner and make him choose. And he should be wrong regardless, but good corners can bait, 
and especially if it's a long throw from the far hash, like it was in this case, uh, they can they can make up the ground and make a play on the ball. Just talking in terms of personnel and Cal's defense, one player that I think is worth knowing who probably won't show up on a ton of NFL draft boards, but Cal's nickelback, Josh Drayden, he's replacing a guy um, named Travion Beck, who was also really strong at the nickel. Um, so in terms of the middle of the field, that nickel position is another place where Cal's been really good about baiting quarterbacks and potentially making them think that the leverage was one way when it was actually something else and being able to jump and get an interception on short routes. That said, Cal has had to replace two safeties in the middle of the field. Um, what do we think about that matchup between the duck passing offense and two reasonably green safeties playing back there for the Bears? Yeah, this isn't the USC wide receiver group, but it's certainly a good wide receiver group. And Jalen Red out of the slot has been very efficient. I think with Devin Williams stepping up and Micah Pittman coming back from, uh, I would assume, COVID protocol uh, this week, he'll slide back into the slot and you'll see a lot more 10 personnel. So I don't know if Cal likes to uh, match with Dime or if they stay in nickel even against 10. Do you know the answer to that question? Uh, they'll play a lot of nickel. Um, I mean, they've got a dime package, but but it's it's mostly going to be nickel for them. Yeah, so I just, I'm just operating off the assumption that you're going to see a lot of 10 personnel this week. So it'll be an interesting matchup between two very different types of receivers. You have Jalen Red, who's the small water bug twitchy guy, and you've got Micah Pittman, who is more of a he's more of a true wide receiver. He even plays the X at, at times for Oregon. At the beginning of the year, he was starting at the X on the outside. So uh, very different kinds of guys and uh, an interesting matchup to monitor, especially if it's a new nickelback this season. Um, yeah, and, and something else that's interesting just from a personnel standpoint is that Cal has also, up until this point, had some... They've been missing one of their starting outside linebackers. And so against Oregon State, who was a big two tight end team, the Bears were still playing nickel almost the whole game, even though they were you know, bringing in those extra blockers and running behind them. Um, Cal might get uh, an outside linebacker back, um, but they've, they've really been playing a lot of the season in nickel. And so to some extent, that might uh, be what Cal would like to do just from a, a standpoint of who's available. So it'll be really interesting. Yeah, I'm interested to see because Oregon's got pretty flexible personnel, especially if McCormick and Webb are both available. They're two tight ends that at the beginning of the year, Oregon was down their top three of their top four tight ends. They're slowly getting guys back. Uh, I think if we have both of them available, you'll see more 12 personnel. A lot of lot, lot of personnel flexibility for Oregon. Uh, and so it's really going to depend on what, what the coaches see on film this week from Cal's defense and what they want to attack. Awesome. Well, I think that that is um, a good place for us to stop. Uh, so we'll take an ad break and then we'll be back to talk a little bit about the Stanford offense, what they've done so far in 2020 and what they've got coming up in their game against Washington. Hey, football fans, we're back for the final segment of this show. We've talked about Oregon State and UCLA on offense and done a little bit of a preview of the Cal-Oregon game that's coming up. Now we're going to take a look at Stanford's offense under David Shaw and Tavita Pritchard. Um, Something that I think is interesting about Stanford is that over the years, they've developed this reputation of being a big-time power run team. Uh, so when we're talking about scheme and the power run game, power is a play where the offensive line to the side of the run is all going to block back away from where the play is going. So if the run's going to the right, offensive line's just going to crash down to the left side. They're going to kind of build a wall uh, to create one edge of the hole. Then you're going to get a fullback kicking out the defensive end or outside linebacker to one side. And then really the... The thing that really makes power go is that you're getting a guard, an offensive guard pulling from the opposite side of the formation, leading through that hole that's being created by the offensive line and the fullback and just getting out to linebackers and kind of wreaking havoc at the second level. Um, so Stanford's had this reputation for being that kind of a team. Uh, but Andrew and I have been talking about that a little bit, and we've noticed that in recent years they haven't been going in that direction as much, and that might be a good point of entry for this conversation. Andrew, what do you think about Stanford's offense and about their run game and how they're leveraging it? Yeah, Stanford's offense has been kind of an enigma the last few years. They, uh, If you go back all the way to Jim Harbaugh, they just ran power until teams tapped out in the fourth quarter, whereas now they're more of a zone run team for the most part. They have some pin and pull schemes. They, they run some power, uh, but I don't know if it's a shift in recruiting or if it's just a shift in, in offensive philosophy, but they've become more of a zone run team like we were talking about early with Oregon State and Oregon, and I believe even well, what Cal was prior to the hire of the new offensive coordinator. Right. Yeah, and so for those zone runs, you know, just to recap some of what we might have said in other places, the difference is instead of having 
you know, your, your offensive line and your fullback kind of parting the seas for a pulling guard to come through and lead up to a linebacker. When you're zone running, the offensive line is all basically just stepping in the same direction. There are different ways to coach it. But if you look at the field and you see that the offensive lines all go in the same way, it's probably a zone run. And that's what Stanford's been relying on more. Um, a tendency that I noticed looking at their Colorado game is that they did run some power and some other stuff, but they were doing it out of, you know, 22 or 23 personnel so that's your two backs a couple of tight ends in the game and um when when they have that tendency at least against colorado i think part of the problem is that you can't run that and also have the kind of west coast offense passing game uh that that david shaw likes to run so much so they've kind of siloed those two parts of their offense formationally um and and that gives them that gives them some tells frankly um, you were you were talking during the break about some field position things that you noticed regarding their run game and their passing game as well. Yeah, well, it just seems in the past they've been able to stay ahead of the chains very effectively. And at times this year they did it uh, against Oregon. They ran the ball very effectively on first down and were able to be a little bit less predictable. But it seems uh, a West Coast passing game, which is really predicated on timing and, and, and just being patient down the field, they've had a hard time sustaining drives because of the lack of uh, a lack of consistency in the run game. I think we saw that last week against Cal. Yeah, absolutely. And when we're talking, I, you know, I like what you said about the West Coast offense and that passing game. Um, traditionally, Stanford in that system has relied on really good tight end play. They've had some fantastic tight ends, most recently Colby Parkinson. But I mean, really going back the entire time, Harbaugh, I think when he came in, he recruited a million tight ends. Um, and that was something that he really wanted to emphasize. And a lot of what they've been doing with their tight ends was lining them up, you know, flexing them out in the slot a little bit and having them run these option routes. You know, look at the defender that's lined up over you, run down the field to five yards and then break wherever that defender isn't. The quarterback's reading that same defender so he knows where you're going to go. Um, but this year, Stanford really doesn't have that tight end threat in the passing game. Um, what are you seeing in terms of tight ends and wide receiver personnel? Yeah, so Tucker Fisk is the tight end that they play the most, and he's a massive, massive guy. He's basically a either an undersized tackle. I mean, I don't even know if he's really undersized. He's 6'4", 280 pounds, and the 280 pounds is probably after a diet because he's just a big, thick guy um, who, who's more of a road grader. He, can, he catches the ball okay, but he's not a very um, elusive player at, with the ball in his hands as opposed to like the, the Austin Hoopers, the Colby Parkinson's, the Tyler Eifert's, the long list of tight ends that they've had over the years who are really, uh, they're effective downfield threats. They do their mismatches against nickel corners or safeties. Uh, they don't really have that this year. So it's transitioned more to a base 11 personnel offense where they, they use Michael Wilson, their stud inside wide receiver, or Connor Weddington in that role instead. Um, yeah, I'm, it's it's interesting to talk about using wide receivers in that role instead of tight ends, because last year it kind of went the opposite direction sometimes, where Parkinson was a tight end who was so athletic, they'd get down in the red zone, and they'd put him out as you know the weak side wide receiver for all intents and purposes, get him matched up on a true cornerback, and then just throw the ball up and let him go get it. Um, they do kind of give up a little bit in terms of that outside threat, at least in terms of the Colorado game that I saw. A lot of what they were doing had to operate to those receivers out of the slot. They, they, I haven't seen them really take advantage of those mismatches on the outside as much as they might have been able to in the past. Um, so we talked about Michael Wilson. Uh, what have you seen from Simi Fajoko? Yeah, Simi Fajoko, if they do have a true X or Z receiver, that would be the guy. I mean, he's he's, he's a longer threat. He has a good stride. He can get downfield. He's a vertical threat. Um, but he's been touch and go. They've been inconsistent in that aspect of their offense. One of the cool things, if we're talking about the Stanford offense that they used to do, is typically uh, if it's man coverage and you're playing um, a tight end like like they used to have, those Eiferts and guys like that, if, if you were lining up against any other team in 11 personnel and not down near the goal line, so you have one tight end, one running back, and you had trips to the field and you had the one tight end to the boundary, well, they would detach the tight end and he would line up as a receiver. But man rules would dictate that it's going to be either a safety or a linebacker that would go out over the top of him as opposed to a cornerback. So teams would either have to break their rules against Stanford to get a corner over there and then they would have that unideal matchup on the opposite side to the trips um, or they would just have to deal with the fact that they have to try to cover an elite athlete with a linebacker safety. Um, not having that has made them a lot more predictable in the red zone, in my opinion, and a lot easier to, to guard. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I'm seeing that same kind of thing. I mean, Stanford's a team that's always been known for having great offensive linemen. I think they call themselves the Tunnel Workers Union for a while or something like that. It has one of the Harbaugh advertising campaigns. Um, looking at the game against Colorado, we've talked about Colorado on here. That is a good 3-4 front, really good defensive line, really good at commanding double teams and also shedding blocks and falling off into lanes to make tackles. Um what have you seen from Stanford's offensive line in 2020? Are they up to their usual standard? Well, they haven't been up to the usual standard in three years, so it just kind of depends. I think that they're better than they were a year ago. Um, I think they really struggled last year, obviously, being a very young group, very banged up. They lost Walker Little for the season. Uh, he ended up opting out. He's likely to be a first-round draft pick this year, uh, the left tackle. But they're an, an older group with some experience under their belt. They've lost some guys to transfer. Devery Hamilton was a guy that started all over the place last year who's not there anymore, I don't believe. So, it's a again, it's a young group, a group that is going to be together for probably two or three more years and has some high upside because of that continuity that they're going to be having. So, uh, it's it's not it's not the, the groups of uh, when they had Andres Pete and Josh Garnett and all those guys and the early 2000s back when they used to go to war with Oregon every year but it's a uh, it's a good talented group and running behind them we've got Austin Jones who stepped into this this starting role uh, with the absence of um, of Scarlett who they had before um, what are you seeing from what are you seeing from Jones in the run game not to take away from from what uh, Cameron Scarlett was doing last year for for the for the Stanford Cardinal but Austin Jones is just a more explosive back. Uh, he's filled out really nicely over the last year. He's gotten stronger. Uh, he's more of a fully dimensional player that can make explosive runs as opposed to somebody who's kind of more of a between the tackles grinder who's just he's just going to take what's there and maybe get a few extra yards after contact. There's actual serious explosive threat with him. Uh, and they've got a, a nice group of young backs, including Emmett Smith's son, uh, Casey Fillikins, and Isaiah Sanders, who's a pretty good back as well. Yeah, and when, when you're going to more of a zone kind of offense, I think having a running back that brings that plus element to the game is a big help. It's so important within that kind of running game to, to be able to read blocks, find seams, and then to hit those seams fast and be able to get yards, you know, get skinny um, and get through some pretty tight spaces sometimes. When you go away from the power run game as Stanford's doing and you run a little bit less of a diverse run game than they have in the past, then the offensive coordinator, you know, he doesn't have all those different tools in terms of blocking scheme and changing up where the lead blockers and going and things like that. Um, an offensive coordinator, when he doesn't have all of those tools, I think it becomes more about just being able to run zone really, really well. It becomes critical to get that offensive line more experience, as you're saying, but then to have a back who can really make it work. Stanford hadn't really had that since Bryce Love, who really had the ability to make something out of nothing. And when he had a great offensive line in front of him, could do even more than that. I think he had a 2,000-yard season or something close to that. Um, but Stanford has, you know, they haven't really had the running back who could create in that way. Uh, but Jones might seem to be the guy. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to differentiate between what makes a, a good zone running back and more of a good gap running back because they are different things. A lot of times it's associated with with uh, gap scheme running backs. They call, call them slashers. They're one cut guys. The, the, the gap where they're going to be running is predetermined, whereas with, with, with zone running schemes, it's more of a feel and instinctive thing. We call them pick and slide guys, guys that can, uh, that can cut off of a defender's or off of an offensive line's butt and set up blocks downfield and make, and they can just like, like kind of like I explained, pick and slide their way through the, through the defense. It's a very different style of running game. And, and Austin Jones is shown to be a very adept zone runner. Absolutely. And, you know, to, to the benefit of a zone running game is when you have that kind of offense that gives the running back the freedom to hit a lane kind of wherever it develops. Um, you know, if the defense wants to blitz a lot and bring an extra rusher from a certain side, then that running back can just cut to wherever that pressure isn't coming from. So zone schemes can be really flexible, and that's a huge benefit. I think that's why a lot of pro-style teams ultimately kind of major in zone and make that their dominant run play. You know, when you're running that kind of power, the disadvantage is when you've got that running back who can just kind of hit the one lane and then go, you know, if a team has a good idea what play is coming, they can stunt into it. They can take away that one lane. Um, when you run that gap scheme, as Andrew calls it, where you're just kind of trying to open up one hole, there's a little bit less that a running back can do if things don't go exactly as plans to the point at the point of attack. Um, so Stanford definitely wants one of those good zone running backs that Andrew's talking about. And maybe they're getting to a point where they've got the offensive line to run it. They've got the running back to run it. And they can get back to being that kind of dominant rushing team 
that we've gotten so used to them being. Without leaving the Pac-12 footprint, but looking at it from an NFL standpoint, you look at what Kyle Shanahan does for the 49ers. I mean, his dad was the king of the zone running attack. He could take a bunch of running backs that everyone thought were kind of below average guys that were just kind of just they were just considered average until they would get to the Broncos and uh, he would turn them because they had great instincts and they, they coached a really good zone running scheme. They turned into really productive guys all the time there. So um, you can if you get the right running back for his own scheme, which I think Austin Jones is, you, know, you, you basically are giving an artist a paintbrush because they can be as creative as they want on the move. And coaching also becomes a big issue when it comes to zone. So I, I believe you're talking those Denver teams you're talking about their offensive line coach was Alex Gibbs. Is is that the yep. error that you're? Yep. yep. So he was, you know, I mean, talk about a classic offensive line coach. If you watch clinic tape of him, he's saying like, I don't just want to coach the offensive line. I want to coach the backs. You know, if the back makes a mistake, I want to be the guy that's his coach and I can go and yell at him. You know, I want to be sure that the offensive line is getting the exact same coaching points as my running back so that we know exactly what's going on. Um, You know, not everybody who actually most teams that run zone don't have that kind of situation with an offensive line coach. You can command that kind of role. Um, And what are we seeing from Stanford in terms of offensive line coaching over the years? Is there any is there any element to that that might not be personnel related, but related to changes in coaching? Well, unfortunately, I don't know the name of the current guy, but I do know that um, the fall off and kind of the inconsistency of the offensive line over the last three years was in relation to a coaching change at that position where they had a guy who I think got an NFL opportunity. Um, so I think that's a big piece of it. I think that might be part of the philosophical change away from the gaps games to more of a zone running game. Uh, but it's just kind of hard to say because David Shaw at the end of the day is the arbiter of that offense and it's going to be whatever he wants to do that gets done. And they've got an offensive coordinator there who hasn't really done anything away from Stanford at any point in his coaching career. He went essentially straight from being a Stanford quarterback to being a Stanford assistant coach. And now he's managing the offense for Shaw, but it's still very much Shaw's offense um, to a large degree, just because I don't know if the offensive coordinator knows anything different at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like when UCLA hires coaches and they don't actually have an offensive coordinator in name. Everyone knows that that's Chip Kelly's offense. This is the David Shaw offense. They could have you or I labeled as the offensive coordinator. We're going to be running what David Shaw wants to do. Um, So now that we've talked a little bit about the Stanford offense, they've got this game coming up against Washington. I know that you keep an eye on the Huskies as as a Ducks fan and, and a general fan of scheme and what's going on in the Pacific Northwest. Um, how does this kind of zone-based West Coast offense attack, maybe a little bit wide receiver and passing game heavy, how, uh, how do you think this matches up with Washington and what they've been doing with Jimmy Lake? I think it's a horrible matchup for Stanford. Um, I, I, don't, I don't like um, a West Coast offense against a group of, of defensive backs as talented and as deep as this Washington group is. I mean, they go eight, nine deep in the defensive backfield with some serious quality. And so if you're going to want to nickel and dime your way down the field, it's just going to be it's going to be difficult for anyone to execute uh, for long stretches of time because to to score touchdowns against Washington, unless you're getting big explosive plays, which they don't give up, you're going to have to execute for 10, 12, 14 play drives all the way down the field over and over again. So I think this could be a, a low scoring game because of that, because we have two ball control offenses going back and forth. But in general, I just think it's a tough matchup for Stanford. Um, although if they can run the ball, they've got a chance. I just I don't think that the the passing game is going to be explosive enough to get them the win. What about that running game versus Washington's fronts? I think if there is a spot on this Washington defense that you can attack, it's it's the Washington front. Um, the they lost um, they lost some players off last year's team. Joe Tryon, uh, ZTF. I'm, I apologize. I struggle with the poly names. I'm not going to even try. Uh, has been more explosive and more productive as a pass rusher on the edge. He's going to be a guy that's a real problem for, for the Stanford offensive line. Uh, they've got, um, they've got a, a whole host of interior guys, although they did lose um, two to injury before the season started Latu on the edge and Tuli. I'll just say is the name for the guy on the interior. Uh, they, it's going to be tough because they're getting deeper into their defensive line pool, which should be a really talented group because they've recruited well at that position over the years. But uh, a lot of guys that are short on experience against an offensive line that actually has quite a few game reps under their belt since they've been playing together as a group for about two years now. And this will be a really interesting test for Stanford. You know, they, 
ran the ball okay against Cal in the big game. Not great. Um, I don't think that they ripped off really any big plays at all in that game. Um, so if that's kind of a benchmark, you know, Washington's going to be a, another team that, you know, they've, they've got a defensive front that you might like to see Stanford be able to run against if they're going to be able to have success. Uh, and, and that'll really kind of show us where these respective first level units, the offensive line and defensive front for Washington, where they kind of fit into the PAC 12 pecking order. That'll be a really interesting game to watch. And you've seen really improved linebacker play for Washington. Um, I'm so sorry because the names are so difficult to pronounce on a lot of these guys, but Olafoshio, the walk-on linebacker, who's now in year two as a starter, has really stepped up, and I believe he's PFF's highest-graded linebacker in the Pac-12. So they've improved at linebacker at Washington, and it's just it, you're going to have to have an efficiency running game if you want to run the ball against them. You're not probably going to have a 50- or 60-yard touchdown run, but you really just need to have a bunch of 6- to 10-yard chunks because those two high safeties that they play play really deep, keeps everything in front, and they're both really good tacklers. So it's a it's a tough task to score on this Washington defense. If you're going to do it, it has to be long drives, which means that the Stanford defense needs to show up too and control what is another ball control efficiency based offense for Washington. Yeah, and, and as I said, they didn't get a ton of those six to ten yard runs against uh, against my Cow Bears. Um, but so we'll we'll see. I mean, if if they're rushing for more like four yards of play, it starts to get a little bit hairier there. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting because Stanford undoubtedly has very good talent at wide receiver, so they have that going for them. And Davis Mills, in my opinion, is one of the higher ceiling quarterbacks in the conference, so if he shows up and is playing really good ball, they're going to have a chance offensively because Oregon State kind of put the blueprint out there for if you're going to if you're going to uh, move the ball uh, with some success against Washington, it's going to be running the ball with that zone running game, and it's going to be off play action as opposed to um, you're not going to really win just straight back drop back passing, which if I was going to compare those two rosters, I think Stanford probably has a better personnel set for just the standard drop back pass game versus versus Oregon State. But Oregon State has been a lot more effective in the zone running game on the offensive line. And Jamar Jefferson is probably a better back than what Stanford's going to be putting out there. All right. With that, I think that we are ready for this week's upcoming games. Thank you, Andrew, for joining me. Once again, you can find Andrew on Twitter at QB11SD. I'm Doug. You can find me at Burke18CFB, where I'm going to be posting uh, some YouTube breakdowns and things like that. If you want to see what any of these plays look like on film and uh, and hear some discussion of that, you can find me there. Uh, otherwise, we'll be back in two weeks for a show previewing the Pac-12 championship game. And we look forward to seeing you all there.